Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Women's Strength Collective. As always, I'm your host, Shay Zaru, and today I'm talking to the wonderful Sarah Doyle of The Better Life Project. I actually found Sarah six years ago now when I was listening to the Sigma Nutrition podcast with Danny Lennon, and I absolutely fell in love with some of the messages she shared in those episodes, in particular about happiness and how to attain it. I listened to the first episode when I was in a bit of a rut when I was 19. I'd just gotten out of a long-term relationship, was in the midst of moving houses, and generally felt like I had no strong direction in my life, which is something I've always really, really struggled with, um, especially when I was growing up. My biggest takeaway from those episodes were about identifying what makes you happy, what activities make you happy, and then trying to implement them daily in some form. And this was a huge game changer for me when I felt really stuck. Before that, I'd never really sat down and created a happiness to-do list is what she calls it. And I made a point to create one after that episode and do some of those things daily. It definitely helped with how I was feeling when I was sitting in that rut. And although it was like larger decisions that got me out of it, adding in some of those things that I knew would make me happy definitely made it a bit easier to sit through. And I was just so excited to be able to get her on today because she has such an incredible take on so many things outside of happiness as well. We speak a lot about perfectionism and trying to be a perfectionist in the second half of the episode, which really stood out to me. And I had some great takeaways from it. And I think you guys will too. I would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So if you share, please make sure to tag me and tag Women's Strength Collective as I'd love to have a conversation with you guys about your biggest takeaway from this episode. But if you do really enjoy this episode and enjoy the podcast, please be sure to leave us a review on iTunes as it really helps people find us. But Getting into it now with Sarah Doyle, and if you want to find her, please go to the show notes as it is linked right there. I hope you all enjoy today's episode, and thank you as always for joining me. Welcome, Sarah, to the podcast. It's really, really great to be able to talk with you. It's so awesome to chat with you. I was speaking to you before this about hearing one of your podcast episodes with Danny Lennon around six mm-hmm. years ago, we think. And it really helped me shape how I viewed happiness and also just when I was sitting in a rut and the things that I could do to get out of it. But before we jump right into that side of things, if you just want to give everyone a bit of an introduction uh, as to who you are and maybe a bit about the Better Life Project as well. I am a coach, speaker and author. So um I guess the, the bit that I'm the most proud of, the bit that I'm the most excited about is, is the coaching piece. The Better Life Project about, about six years ago, um, I was asked to, not asked, sorry, I um, was originally working in a university here in Ireland as a project manager on an international development research piece. And I fell out of love with that job and I started to feel the pull of an unfulfilled ambition which was coaching so I eventually gave myself permission to imagine my life completely different to how I planned it for years and years and years I set up the Better Life Project it originally just was a Facebook page where I would post some things. I might do a little workshop here or there. I might see a client or two. But over time, things started to get really, really busy. And I was able to then leave my full-time job to work full-time with the Better Life Project as a coach. And then over the last six years, I've developed workshops. I've done speaking. I wrote a book. I've made products. But Everything around my vision and my plan with my job and my work is just to help women specifically um, to feel better about themselves, to have more kindness and love and self-compassion in their lives. And I consider it a privilege every day that I get to do this because I really love it. (laughs) Yeah, you put out some really incredible content, not just obviously in podcasts, but on your Instagram and all of it and your email list as well. When I found you, I joined Mm. your email list and then I also got my partner to join your email list. (laughs) 
<laughs> they were always just such nice emails to get that would oh, make you think you. about things a bit differently. But yeah. when you made that decision to start the Better Life Project, mm. how did you feel? Oh, I shat my pants. I was terrified. I had a pretty stable and secure job. I could have, if I wanted to, stayed working in that university for a very, very long time. But I couldn't let go of this love and passion that was, I guess, growing inside of me. I, I wanted to help people, but in a different way. I wanted to help people feel confident and motivated. And I just, I couldn't let that go. And I was very, whilst I worked incredibly hard, there was also a portion of it that um, made it easy for me to pursue that dream and that goal because I was living at home. I had no responsibilities. Um, I had no children. My husband, who was then my boyfriend, was on a similar journey. He was an accountant who wanted to set up his own gym. So sort of the, everything just lined up at the right time and in the right way. Handing in my notice, which I actually did in a few days, six years ago. So it's wow. all incredibly surreal. Um, it was one of the most terrifying things that I've ever done. My manager didn't speak to me for a couple of days, but I knew it was the right decision for me. And I remember walking away um, on my very last day in September looking behind me and looking at the building that I used to work in and just feeling in every part of me that I had made the right decision. And that was an incredibly reassuring feeling to have as I began my journey um, as a full-time working coach. But it was the scariest thing that I've ever done. But one thing that I have learned over the years is that the scariest things will always yield the most rewarding um, uh, change and results. So. I'm, I'm really pleased that I took that leap when I did because I, if I had waited, I would have had so many other obligations and I don't know if it would have been possible, but um, it was uh, terrifying, but oh, I'm so glad that I did it. So yeah. glad that I did it. Obviously an incredibly hard decision. I had a mm. decision to make about, it was nearly four and a half years ago. I was also in like mm. a really secure public service job and mm -hmm my heart was not in it and mm. I knew I wanted to pursue a gym. So open up mm. my own gym and mm. do that training and coaching side of it as well. And yeah. it's so yeah. crazy to hear you say that, you know, you remember looking back at the building and yeah. feeling so reassured. And I remember sending my partner the same thing. I was like, man, I have just, you know, I've just had a tear and he's like a sad tear. And I was like, no, like a happy yeah. Yeah. at peace here although it was stepping into like the biggest unknown of my life yeah. I think that's so important to have that sort of release because doing something like this becoming self-employed working for yourself I think it's it's going to be it's one of the most difficult journeys that I think that we'll ever embark on and you know aside from maybe one or two other things um but being able to look back at that moment and, and just always have that moment to reassure us and to inspire us and to empower us and during any moments of doubt or insecurity that we might experience we can always look back at that moment and go I am doing the right thing this is just a bump in the road so yeah and when you made that decision six years ago mm. What do you think have been some of your biggest lessons that you've learned? Oh, um, that being a life coach and running a business are two very, very different things. And I wish I had prepared myself more for the running the business part. I can't explain it very well, but I really hand on my heart feel like I have found what I'm supposed to do. There's just something about life coaching that I get. I'm quite intuitive with it. I, I will do something and then I'll read about it later and I'll go, well, I'm, I'm doing what that book said that I should do. And I find that that, that to me is really, um, again, it's a really reassuring, very reaffirming and heartening feeling. But the running the business part, I really, really continue to struggle with that um, so the biggest lesson I guess um, is to nurture and I said this recently as well if I spend one hour coaching I need to spend one hour nurturing my business 
because it doesn't matter if I think I'm the best life coach around. If I don't know how to market myself, then it means nothing. Outside of that, um, I guess the biggest lesson that I've learned is that I'm not afraid to fail. Failure doesn't scare me at all. And I, I, I don't know why I think, I think it goes back quite a while to when I was in school. I'm not afraid to fail. I'm not really afraid to make mistakes, but what I am afraid of is not meeting my potential or feeling like I was successful or good at what I do. Um, so when I'm looking at starting something new, I know that if I'm afraid of it, if I fear it in some way, then I have to pursue it. Um, I've looked at a number of projects that I've launched over the last few years, and it's always the ones that scare me the most, like I've said, um, that yield the most incredible rewards. Um, I've learned that no matter how hard things feel, that you just need to keep your head down and keep working because success will be around the corner. There have been some moments running my business where I've been or things have been quiet and there's been no inquiries. And no matter how many times I press refresh on my online banking, there's still loads of zeros and not the, not the nice type of zero. <laughs> so I've just learned, and, and James taught me this. He said, Sarah, when you're quiet, you keep your head down because it's the work that you do now that will show up in six months time. And I live by that rule. So no matter how bad things are, I know if I keep my head down in six months time, things will turn around for me. And they always do. Yeah. So there's a lot of there's a lot. moments like yeah. that though, to not uh, take it personally, I guess. I know. Oh my God. Cause you put, you put your life and soul into this, like running it, running a business is, It's like, like Billy is my, my baby. He's my actual baby, but the business is is also my baby. I put everything into this. So if someone says no, I'm like, I'm sorry, what? You no to me? Nah, girl. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's tough. It really is. And everyone always says, oh, you need a thicker skin. But I'm like, no, my sensitivity is a part of who I am. And, and why shouldn't I take this personally? Why shouldn't I? I can manage it. Um, I won't let it stop me. But if you're going to say no to something that I've poured my heart into, don't tell me not to be offended if someone doesn't like it. I sure, like, I'm sure you work with a lot of different women who have been in similar situations and looking mm. at, at that line of either making this big decision or mm -hmm. leaving it and kind of mm. maybe coming back to it later. But do you have any advice for someone who is in that position right now who is considering making that big kind of change that they're considering is a risk take it really really slow I think sometimes when we're looking at a possible career transition we think that it needs to happen so fast but I was 15 months nurturing the better life project as a side project or a passion project so if there's something that you're really passionate about it it doesn't need to happen straight away we don't need to quit our job hand in our notice and begin this this new part of our lives straight away i, I would i would actually go as far as saying that that's quite um rash to do i would say create an exit strategy that supports your needs and your goals and work that exit strategy for as long as you need to, so that you feel safe and secure throughout that change process. So I would never ever say to anyone, give up, but I would say, slow down. It doesn't need to happen tomorrow. Sometimes for many of us, all we actually need in life is an outlet outside of our nine to five. And that can sometimes feel like enough. But the idea of nurturing a passion project on top of a full-time job can often feel um, like we are half-assing it, like it's not enough, like we're a failure, like we're scared. Whereas that's not the case. There's so much to support um, how a side project can actually improve our well-being, our creativity, our innovation, our confidence, our self-esteem. And if we manage our time well, it can just be a couple of hours 
one evening, a few hours at the weekend. So I won't ever say quit. Continue to pursue whatever sets your soul on fire, but just know that you don't need to do it straight away. It can be a slow burn. Yeah, I love how you mentioned that it took you 15 months Mm. to make that decision. I Mm -hmm. think mine was probably just over 12. I was working essentially two full-time jobs until I felt secure enough to make that decision. And, you know, maybe I pushed that out a bit too long, but I definitely Mm -hmm. was looking for, I guess, that security before I made that big decision because making it would have caused me more stress than staying in my current position. And like you said, nurturing something on the side. Yeah. 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 Cause it's terrifying. It's, just, and, and the idea of losing our financial security as well is so valid. And many of us will judge ourselves for the fear that we experience when we think about the idea that we won't know how much money we get in at the end of every month. So we need to be able to respect that fear and put steps in place to help us manage it. And sometimes we also just need to save a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So do you consider yourself, I know you've called yourself, you know, a bit of a life coach before. Mm, Yeah. What, how would you define that? So as a coach, my job is to support people achieve their personal and professional goals. So the role of a coach is a facilitator in their client's change process. I specialize, I guess, in three types of coaching. So performance coaching, um, skills coaching and self-discovery. So performance might be I want to achieve a goal overcome a boundary skills might be I need to get better at communication or managing my time and the self-discovery one which is the one that I really love is um I guess working on my relationship with myself trying to identify my purpose and meaning in life just trying to figure things out it's quite introspective it's quite reflective and there are so many types of coaches so the umbrella term would be coach but then we have life coach and executive coach and business coach and leadership coach but it's it's an incredible role to have in someone's life but it's also um an incredible way to I guess achieve your goals because you have someone that you're accountable to and someone whose job is goal setting um so it's um it's a really, really cool industry that I think is, is probably quite, quite active and um, quite uh, big in, in Australia. When I first qualified almost 10 years ago, people didn't know what a life coach was. They just thought, oh, Jesus, you look into crystal balls, do you? Um, and it, it took a while for, for Ireland to embrace coaching. And that was primarily driven by how it was so quickly accepted within corporates as a means to support their staff, to, to create change, accelerate change, to uh, learn and grow. Um, but I believe that in, in the US, the UK and, and on Australia as well, it's, 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 you know, it's cool and hip and yeah, coaching, woo! <laughs> Yeah, I definitely, I think there's obviously a place for many different coaches in your life. It's interesting how sometimes we say we might look at one type of coach and we'll think one thing, you know, let's just use like a personal trainer for an example. It makes so much sense for when you have, you know, a, a physique or a performance in terms of like your physical performance space Mm -hmm. that you go see a coach and it's so interesting how we view it. I guess people do think sometimes like a life coach can be like a little bit like fluffy in the mm-hmm. sense. And so it's interesting though, how we view that when it makes so much sense on a personal level, if you want to go here and you don't know how that you'd go to someone who has the tools and so many times that would be a life coach. So, so in Ireland, unfortunately, there is um, a stigma around mental health that many organisations and people are, are I guess, um, breaking down and supporting us to understand better. And, and, and I'm very grateful that these people and organisations in Ireland exist. But there is a stigma around mental health and people feel like if, if they are working with a coach or a therapist that they're broken, wrong or flawed. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to talk about that or do that. Now, it's definitely improving, 
But what you said is so incredibly valid and correct. If you have a goal around your health or your fitness or your physique, it is so acceptable and normal and natural to say, well, I'm going to work with a personal trainer. But if we have a goal around our mental health, our mental performance, our attitude, our life, then the idea of getting support seems strange for some now it, it, it's it's improving so much I no longer have to say I'm a life coach and this is what I do when I say I'm a life coach people go oh that's great and then they talk about their problems and I'm like ah, <laughs> write me a check first <laughs> um but what you said it's it's so true and I I, I do I, I look forward to the day when my clients will tell their friends, no, I can't go out with you on Tuesday night because I have an appointment with my life coach. And we're not there yet. And that journey is my client's journey. But I look forward to that day because we will very, very openly say to people, oh, I can't do that. I'm with my personal trainer, hair appointment, dentist, GP, um, sorry, GP doctor. Um, we're getting there we're getting there some clients will be very very open about it um but i look forward to the day where we have wholly accepted it in our society as a really natural thing to do to to nurture ourselves our well-being our personal development so when you started this just has brought up a point for me like when you started mm. six years ago i know you've just said that there's been a lot of change since then mm. but did you have to do some work around letting go of what other people thought about you or your career change oh oh yeah and i still i'm extremely proud of being a life coach um like i said i really have found my vocation my purpose in life but i when i was trying to leave my university job my last ditch attempt to try to validate my decisions in front of others meant that I applied for a PhD program in social sciences in a different program in a different university because I thought oh, it'll be easier to tell people I'm pursuing a PhD than it would a business in life coaching or a job in life coaching. So for me, I um, it's probably one of those agitations, those mental agitations that I suffer with the most. It's what do other people think of what I'm doing? And it's been incredibly difficult empowering myself and teaching myself to let go of that. It's still always there in the back of my mind and it's quite, um, it's quite subconscious. Like I find myself doing something that I know other people expect of me or want of me, but only realizing that in hindsight. And I just need to practice compassion with myself. I think it's a tendency that was definitely learned very, very early on. Um, I'm very aware of it now, which is fantastic. But in order to support me move forward, I just constantly need to hold on tight to my own goals. And I just need to constantly remind myself that I'm doing something that's important to me, that I want in my life. And I just need to take steps forward towards that and then whenever I do compare myself or think about others or or do something that I think people are expecting of me I just need to give myself a break because like if it took me you know 25 years or 30 years to learn that behavior I'm not going to unlearn it overnight but for me worrying about what other people thought was 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 almost the reason why I didn't pursue my job as a, as a coach I had to I remember the, the moment I found out that I didn't get the PhD and I just thought, well, that's it. I can't be a life coach anymore, which was so bizarre because I didn't get a PhD program. I thought I couldn't pursue my dream anymore because I thought the PhD was the only way that I could leave my job because that's the only thing that my colleagues would understand and respect. Mm -hmm. So it was, was totally messed up, but um it was who I was at the time. I've, I've improved a lot, but letting go of what people think of you. I don't know if you can ever fully let go of that. I think that you can just respond to yourself differently in those moments. And that's what I do. I just respond to myself very differently rather than judge myself or criticize myself for being weak or flawed, or I would even 
at times say, God, Sarah, you're so pathetic the way you're still thinking like this. I would just respond going, Sarah, you're really struggling and it's so clear. So let's just slow things down a little bit. Revisit your own goals. Maybe use an affirmation to help you focus your thoughts a little bit. But you've got this, Sarah. So It's such a common thing. I mean, mm, it's been I a theme so. in my life and I did a podcast episode with a girl called Megan this week. And she is someone who I would say is, you know, at the top of her career, incredibly Mm -hmm. popular, um, really just doing some incredible work in the strength sports arena. But who, who is she? uh, Meg squats. Oh my God. You, I'm what I didn't, I haven't seen. Okay. I've been into, It was, it was, I think... Calm down, calm down. <laughs> right, that's what yeah. I meant. But that's kind of, that was my, that is my response to Meg Squats yeah. too, right? Yeah. And when I had a chat with her and we spoke about when she had an identity crisis in 2018 mm. and she ended up saying, I thought it may have been performance-based, right? But it actually, mm-hmm. she ended up saying on the podcast that it, a large, large part of it was actually because she was getting so wrapped up in what other people thought about her. And so she was at a meet and she kept just thinking about all these people in the room that hate her or have been talking poorly about her. And Mm. I think hearing that just made me realize exactly what you've just said there. I don't think there probably Mm. is a point in time in your life where you just completely let go of what other people Mm. think of you. Yeah. And I think so, unfortunately, I believe that we can get very wrapped up in trying to let go of tendencies that we feel don't serve us. So uh, people pleasing, comparing ourselves to others, um, overthinking or worrying. And like every day I see this in my clients, I see it in myself, I see it in my friends, and we become obsessed with trying to change these parts of us. And I believe that's a really worthy goal. And if it's something that someone wants to work on, I will always support them to achieve that goal. But there's always a part of me that's going to say, well, how about we accept this flaw of yours and learn how to respond to it differently? Mm. Because for me, it's our response that can often be the most painful. So imagine it like this. The, the, I guess the overthinking or the people pleasing is, is what I call the primary problem. So it's, it's a big problem. It, it weighs us down. It can be a burden. But often <clears throat> we will judge or criticize ourselves for feeling that. And that becomes the second problem. But what we usually focus more on is how we feel after the point. It's the judgment or the criticism that becomes heavier that grows disproportionately we think god why am i still feeling like this i shouldn't be like this i'm 20 i'm 30 i'm 40 i'm 50 i should be over this by now and that for me is sometimes the bigger problem we are completely flawed human beings at the end of the day and i just think that it's some parts of these tendencies that we do naturally our normal, our negativity bias is quite high. We do things because we're trying to protect ourselves at the end of the day. So yes, there are 100% people who can learn how to let go of these things. But there are also people that can um, learn to respond to them differently and act anyway. And I think that's, that's what happened to me with my fear of failure. I remember I was um, in Barcelona at a work trip and I was talking about self-compassion in the workplace, but I I, uh, joined another workshop and it was all about fear. It was just before I launched my journal and they said, um, okay, take this piece of paper and write down what it is that you fear the most in relation to a project that you're working on. And for the first time ever, I identified what was holding me back with my book. I was just about to say to my um, manager, okay, 
this is the final draft. We can print it now. But I was holding myself back. And the reason why I, I was holding myself back was because, sorry, my dog has just come into the room, um, was because I am, I'm a little dyslexic. So spelling and grammar, I'm not so hot at. And it takes me a really long time to write things. But I was also self-publishing my journal. So I didn't have a big um, publishing house behind me. And I just thought, what's the point in publishing this? Who's going to want to read a book from a dyslexic person? And if I don't have a big publishing house to support me and believe in me, who's going to buy my book? I wrote it down for the first time and I looked at this fear for the first time and I just felt a massive weight off my shoulder. And then the second part of the exercise was um, we all stood outside in a big line. So there was like a line of 50, 20 to 30 to 40 year olds in effectively a playground. So there was something quite playful and, and comical about it, but also very serious. We, so we stood at this line and the facilitator of this workshop said, take your piece of paper and fold it into a paper airplane. So 50 adults doing their best to fold this paper into a plane. And he said, I want you all to put your arms out and throw your paper airplane away. I want you to release yourself of your fear and let go of your fear. And I just had this moment where I went, that's not what I want for my life. I don't want to spend any time trying to let go of my fear. Because if I'm doing this thing that I call life well, I'll always be progressing and moving and challenging myself, which means that I'll always have a fear. So I don't want to let go of it. I want to empower myself to learn how to walk with it. So I took one little step back. I folded my paper airplane into my pocket and that was it. I, I, I made a decision in that moment that I wasn't going to fear fear anymore. I was going to empower myself to walk with it. In other words, I was going to empower myself to respond differently to it. And that's a large part of what I do personally and professionally. So if it's people pleasing or judgment or overthinking or comparison, absolutely, let's, let's look at how we can let go of it. But maybe as, as a first step, let's look at how you can respond to yourself differently in those moments of pain and fear and adequacy, because that part, if you get it right, will completely transform your life. Yeah, that's such a beautiful story because, uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing yeah. because I think so often when people think about fear and any other emotion that they might be dealing with, and I think the immediate response from both ourselves and from others too is let it go. There's obviously so much beauty in learning to walk with something and hold something because you're kind yes. of set for life then. What if something does happen in life, let's just say, um, let's use an example, say like a death of a loved one or something like mm. that. When I think about that, I'm not sure I'll ever want to let that hurt go because it's kind of letting, I guess, that person go in a sense too. Mm -hmm. So it'd be like more like learning to walk with it would be mm -hmm. what I would kind of go towards in that sense. So yeah, I think that's really beautifully yeah. put. I think it can be quite, it's quite transformative. It's, it's just learning how to respond to our own experience of life in a way that serves us and empower us, empowers us rather than takes things away from us. When I listened to your podcast, you spoke a lot about happiness. And when mm. I was chatting to you before, I said that I used to definitely like mystify happiness in the sense of <laughs> it was this thing always... I could always see it, but I just had no idea of how to get it. And the biggest takeaway yeah. I got from you is that there are things that I can do to bring happiness and joy to my own life mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. to figure out some things that actually make me happy too. Before your episode, I had never taken the time to just sit down and be like, what are some really little things that make mm -hmm. me happy day to day? It might be yeah. as simple as taking a walk or like cooking or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that was such a game changer for me. Mm. Yeah. yeah. How do you view happiness in your role as a life coach? A lot of it was informed um, by something that happened. So after I got back from Australia for the first time, I got stuck in a massive rush and I saw a counsellor because I just wasn't able to get myself out of it. And during that first session with the counsellor, she said, Sarah, it sounds like you're stuck in a rush you're going to need to claw your way out of it. And that was the first time that I had ever heard someone frame anything like that before. 
and I'm such an action orientated person and I love a goal. And when she told me that I needed to fight to get out of that rush, it gave me something to focus on. And it made me realize that I had so much more power than I did. I read and I researched a lot as a coach and I came across a book, The How of Happiness, that spoke about this happiness pie chart that looked at intentions and genetics and circumstances. Now, this pie chart has since been widely criticized. But what I took away from that was the simple fact that there are so many things that we can do to make ourselves happy that we don't do because we have put so many other people's needs and wants and desires ahead of our own. But when we reframe simple parts of our day, when we look at that to-do list that 95% of the population does at least once a week or once a day, if we just put little things in that to-do list that make us happy, it, I believe, can just completely transform how we can feel about ourselves. So going for that walk, I, I call it a happiness to-do list. So I will often look at people or work with people and I'll say, okay, well, let's create a happiness to-do list. And on that list, I want you to put down a combination of things that you think you can do that will make you happy. Now, it can be bucket list territory. It can be jumping out of a plane or climbing Everest, but it could also just be throwing rose petals into a bath or having a bottle of wine or um, going out for a walk by yourself. It can be really simple things because we all know it's the simple things that bring us the most joy in life at the end of the day. So it's just about learning what it is that we can do and then giving ourselves permission to be front and center in our own life for a long time. I've, I've found and I reflect back over the clients that feel a little bit stuck the most. And some of the reasons why they feel stuck is because they have forgotten about themselves. They've become so focused on so many other things that they stopped recognizing their own inherent worth and value. And they stopped pursuing things or doing things that make them feel good so if we have low self-esteem we're not doing things that make us feel good about ourselves because we don't feel good about ourselves and because we don't feel good about ourselves we're not doing things that make us feel good about ourselves so it's a vicious cycle so if we can make a list of things that make us feel happy put that list somewhere where we can see it regularly constantly affirm that we are worthy and valuable of our own time we are worthy and valuable of of doing things that make us feel important and then just taking it really slow because i'm a big believer in taking these things slow but doing things every day or every week that make us feel happy and just allowing that joy into our lives again now i don't want to oversimplify happiness it's it's a very complicated journey that Sometimes we need a lot of help trying to accomplish or feel. But other times, if we're feeling just stuck, if we're feeling like we're stuck in a hamster wheel, that we've lost our sparkle a little bit, you just need to ask yourself, well, when was the last time you did something that made you happy? And for a lot of us, we can't remember the last time we did anything. So make that list and start to do one or two things that you're pretty confident that you can achieve without experiencing too many roadblocks. Yeah. How has that transition been for you as a new mom as well? Are you kind of ticking things off on that happiness to do list too, or are you struggling with it as well? Um, so my perception has, has of, of life and I, I don't want to be very cliched about it, but my perception of, of life from what brings me joy is completely different since Billy came along. So he's now 16 months. Um, I used to look to completely different things to make me happy. So it would be, um, you know, I can almost barely even remember what life was like before Billy, because obviously now we're recording this in the middle of a COVID pandemic. Ireland has just started to um, to loosen um, its restrictions. So we're now officially coming out of lockdown. Businesses are reopening. But we've spent the last three months um, uh, with Billy going to parks and playgrounds. And what makes me happy now is um, myself and James will sometimes have these little fights as to who gets to wake Billy up from his nap. Because when he wakes up from his nap, he's really cuddly and he just wants to cling on to you like a little bear. That makes me happy. That moment 
where my son will wrap his arms around me after he's just woken up from the most incredible one hour sleep. Um, seeing him um, so excited and happy to eat food. We bought him a pair of shoes the other day and he just stomps his feet in his shoes and does a little turn, does a little um, a twist. So things like that, like I find, I think the biggest change for me since becoming a mom is that I find happiness in the moment much quicker and easier than I did before before coming up, becoming a mom. So Sarah pre-mom would have pursued activities to feel happy, which was valid and incredibly helpful. I would have gone to the cinema and myself and James would have gone out for dinner and I would have um, uh, met up with friends. So I would have done things. Sarah, after she's become a mom, sees the things that make her happy in the moment more. And it's, it's, it's usually watching something with Billy or watching how James is with Billy or watching how my family are with Billy. Um, so that's kind of the biggest change for me. It's just changed my perception. It's made me, and it's been one of the gifts of lockdown for me and my family was that it forced us to slow down mm. and we couldn't do anything because nothing was open. So all we had was nature, was each other, and, and, the, and the present moment. And when they fused together, and because I had slowed down so much, I was able to see these moments and I inhaled them. And I set Billy up an account. Uh, he has a, a Gmail account now. So I email him these little moments. And there was one moment where he was eating some food and I was just staring at him. I was like such a creep. I was just watching him. Oh, can't believe you're mine. You're so beautiful. But I, e I emailed him that moment so that when we give him the password to this email account, he can see how weird and creepy his mom was just staring at him whilst he ate his dinner. <laughs> Hopefully I won't do that when he turns 18. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's um, such yeah. a great lesson in that though, because obviously your life has changed so much over mm. the past two years with Billy coming Absolutely. into the world yeah. and mm. obviously allowing yourself to kind of, I guess almost like ebb and flow between that old happiness list and your now new happiness list because that's good. That's exactly Life it. is going to yeah. change and it's going to change again in a year and again in a year. And so mm -hmm. being able to move flexibly between the things that make you happy, I think is a great lesson. And I think that's, you've just put it so well. That's exactly what's happening is that I'm doing exactly what you said. Yeah. When you work with a lot of your women at the moment, I think mm -hmm. in my role as a coach to a lot of the females I work with and maybe part of the reason why they come to me is because they're struggling with confidence. Mm -hmm. Is this a common theme you see working with the people that you do as well? I think it's something that we all can identify with. We judge ourselves unnecessarily for it. I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be confident at something all of the time. We suffer from confidence perfectionism, thinking that if I'm not 100% confident, then I can't do it or I'm not good at it. For me, the biggest lesson that I've learned around how to work with someone to improve their confidence is to help them to understand that it's not all about confidence. When you're trying something new for the first time or doing something for the first time or trying something or doing something after you've experienced a setback in life, confidence doesn't even come into the equation. Confidence is something that we will work on much, much later. What we need to work on is your courage and your compassion first. Because when you do something new for the first time, how on earth are you going to be confident at it? Confidence comes from practice and repetition and confidence comes from doing something. So if you've never done it before, or if you haven't done it with this new, um, I guess, experience of life post a setback, let's bin the idea of confidence and just focus on courage and focus on compassion. So confidence is often sometimes overrated if i'm really honest with you 
we just need to completely reframe what it is that we think that we need in order to do something or get better at something quite often it's self-esteem as well i'll work with a client who thinks sarah i am the the least confident person that you'll ever work with you have your work cut out for you and if i had a euro for every time someone would say that to me i wouldn't need to coach anymore quite often it's just how they feel about themselves and how they respond to themselves that is the problem and I'm using bunny ears the the problem um so it's just a lot of the time it's about educating people around these overlapping concepts of the self self-esteem self-efficacy self-confidence and self-compassion it's about helping a person understand whereabouts they sit with it all so we need courage so that you can get started and compassion so you can learn how to soothe yourself if and when you make a mistake. So when we can learn how to use and exercise our courageous muscle, when we can integrate self-compassion into our everyday life, get these two things right and confidence generally takes care of itself. And that is such a cool thing to be able to help someone understand because we give ourselves a really hard time we suffer from confidence perfectionism we need to be 100% confident in order to do something no we don't you've never done it before so let go of the idea of confidence completely and let's exercise that courageous muscle and let's learn how we can use compassion in our everyday life and so on compassion and on being courageous Do you have some tools that you commonly use with your clients? Yeah. So generally I will focus on a very experiential based type of learning. So I will ask my client to do something quite small outside of their comfort zone and come back and give me feedback on how they actually felt and what that was like. Often we allow assumptions or old beliefs or an old story to guide our life in some way. So we need to be able to get new evidence to support this new belief that we're trying to make. So we generally try to get evidence. We leave our comfort zone. There's a couple of short-term strategies that I can um, teach in order to help people leave their comfort zone. And then what we do is a lot around self-compassion. So some of the strategies that we could use there would be a compassionate break. So looking at mindfulness with um, words around how we can soothe our pain and accept that pain. A lot around compassionate mantras. Self-talk is huge. Self-talk is any of us the be all and the end all of our it's like the end game for our goals that voice inside our head just gets really loud um a lot around looking at what you would do to um, support your best friend who was experiencing similar pain or problem that you would so we identify one or two strategies that we can use to help us be kind to ourselves. We look at maybe one or two short confidence boosting strategies just to get us over the line. So for some people that might be um, if it's a job interview, going out and wearing your, you know, this this suit that makes you feel amazing, these red shoes that make you feel fabulous. Um, it could be adopting a power pose just before we go in. So there's some short-term strategies that we can use to help us feel more courageous. Exercises and strategies um, such as body language, positive talk, affirmations to get us over the line, as in the comfort line. Um, and then self-compassion in order to soothe ourselves when we start to feel uneasy because of what it is that we're doing Um, and usually those combination of activities are highly effective the person then comes back and they go it wasn't as hard as I thought it was going to be it actually felt amazing I'm really proud of myself can't believe I've done it so that sort of feedback I, I don't need to do anything with that the client already feels pretty good they've got a little bit of momentum behind them which is amazing every now and again I get a client who goes no that was it's not gonna happen again sorry that was a complete disaster and then we just talk about it a little bit more see if we can reframe the experience look at that fixed mindset mentality see how we might be able to nurture a growth mindset mentality take it a lot slower maybe we bit off more than we can chew so breaking the goal down into much smaller is something that we can do to improve no matter what the outcome and that's the beauty of experiential learning it's actually getting out there into the real world and doing the thing that we've been talking about doing for a really long time yeah and you just mentioned just then like the fixed mindset to a growth mindset Mm -hmm. how would you define that 
fixed mindset is exactly what it says in the tin. It basically refers to an individual who feels like their mindset or their abilities, qualities or characteristics, their intelligence being what I've been born with is my lot. Um, a growth mindset is someone who is extremely open to learning, open to opportunities, open to growth. So in the real world, it might look like this. Um, two students um, sit a math exam. Um, both students get the, um, I guess, both students fail. Both students only get 40%. The fixed mindset student is going, no, I'm not going to study anymore. There's no point. I'm only, I'm, I'm crap at math. I can't get better. The growth mindset student is going 40%. Wow. Okay. I have a lot of room for improvement. If I apply myself and continue to learn, I know I can improve this grade. The fixed mindset student is going, there's no point in learning. I got what I got. Yeah. And do you find people are in one camp or the other? Yes, absolutely. Um, but it is possible, 100% possible to, to um, I guess, develop a growth mindset. And I couldn't recommend a book by Carol Dweck, Mindset Enough. She was the pioneering researcher behind these two, um, I guess, mindsets. And she talks a lot about specific examples and ways that a growth mindset can be nurtured. Um, but it's just about becoming, I guess, open to new way of doing things. Ourselves a tiny, um, and again, just taking things day by day, step by step, and um, but just always trying to reframe our experiences a little bit more and asking ourselves, Well, what can I learn from this? And I do better, what did in fact go well? Those sort of really support us to be able to nurture that growth mindset if we feel like we're sometimes stuck in a fixed mindset. Yeah, that's great. Just before we start wrapping up. Mm -hmm. I wanted to touch on something that I didn't actually tell you I was going to touch on, but hopefully it's okay. Yeah. I, you've mentioned it throughout this episode, but I want to touch a little bit on, I guess, perfectionism and mm. aiming to be perfect because, yeah. again, it's one of those things that I think is a really common theme with females mm -hmm. in mm. a lot of different areas in their life, but it's something I commonly see in friends. It's something I commonly see in clients, just the mm -hmm. idea of having to reach this level of perfection. Mm -hmm. It's um, for me, it can be very closely tangled with a fear of failure or judgment and perfectionism is often the trap that we get stuck in because it's what we can see. Perfectionism is the tip of the iceberg, whereas the chunk, the big, biggest chunk of the iceberg underneath is usually a fear of something. It's maybe a lack of self-esteem, low self-esteem, fear of judgment or failure. It goes back to what I've spoken about before, but it's how we respond to ourselves when we're pursuing something that we are trying to make perfect. So whether or not it's a project in work, the ideal body type, whether or not it's, it's a relationship, I think it's really important that we can start to look at our experience of life very, very differently. And this is where compassion, again, can play a massive role. My understanding of perfectionism or perfection is that it doesn't exist i believe that as human beings we are all so incredibly different that if we think about it at a really rational level this idea of perfection can't actually exist because if it did then we'd all be the same and doing really similar things whereas we're not we're all too different and our journeys are also different so for those who are i guess stuck on this perfectionist wheel where they won't ever finish something or say something or do something for fear that it's not perfect. I would just ask people like that to first of all, imagine that this was one of their friends who was going through the same thing and ask themselves, well, what would you say to a friend who was constantly pressing pause on their life because they felt what they were doing wasn't perfect. And if their answer for their best friend isn't the same as the answer for themselves, then we need to seriously look at why we think we're so different, why it's okay that we pursue perfection, but we forgive others who won't or who don't or who we think shouldn't. I only ever waited for that email to be perfect. First of all, my sister, who's a teacher and proofs a lot of my work, would have disowned me by now. She has a life. She can't spend forever proofing my work. 
And if other people have a problem with the fact that I have a learning difficulty, that means that my spelling and grammar isn't going to be perfect. That says a lot more about them than it does about me. And I truly understand and connect with that. I also know that when I am in a loop uh, or a spiral of perfectionism, that something else is at play and I'm afraid of something else. And perfectionism is a really convenient excuse for me to fall back to because it's much easier to say, but I'm just trying my best to make this perfect than it is really scared I'm going to fail. It's much easier to say, I want this to be good than I'm scared. Yeah, I love how you have framed that because I think even mm. as people grow up, sometimes people say, oh, you know, I'm just a perfectionist or, you yeah. know, you're such a perfectionist as if it's this, I guess, superior way of living or superior way of doing things. Whereas yeah. in reality, I feel like I had kind of that mindset a little bit and it really mm-hmm. does relate to the fear that I was holding of how people were going to perceive the work that I was putting out into the world. 100%. I think it, it's, it's so much more about how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about failure and judgment than, than anything else. It is, um, I think it's just, a, it's, it's, it's symptomatic of something that's much bigger. And I believe that perfectionism in busyness it's been glorified in our society and we go, oh, she's just trying to do her best and get the best result possible. Whereas we're actually empowering people to continue to put unhealthy levels of stress and pressure on themselves to aspire to an ideal that will change. It will change. And one thing that I learned off Instagram is, um, and I can't remember who wrote it, but it's this idea of doing our situational best. So in any given day, our circumstances, our environment are going to be so unique. All we can bring is our situational best. And that means that when you take into account the world, our life and our feelings, we will only ever be able to do our best in that moment. And that moment will look different to every other moment. And for me, that really soothes the idea or soothes any sort of tendency towards perfectionism because it takes into account how different our life is going to be at any given situation. Um, We can only ever do our situational best. And I don't believe perfect is an ideal that is healthy to aspire to um, because I don't know. I just think there's so many other things that we can be doing and thinking and feeling and achieving in our life than this perfect ideal that to be honest, I've yet to see something that I think is absolutely perfect. That's true. Maybe Billy. Yes, 100%. But I'm, I, and, and to, to be really honest with you, I'm also very, very slow to ever say you're my perfect little boy. Yeah. Because I don't want Billy to ever feel like his flaws or imperfections, which he has, are um, something to feel ashamed of or guilty of or something that he needs to be able to eliminate. Mm. I want Billy to be able to embrace those imperfections and those flaws because he has many, but he's also only 16 months. So the, the idea of, of having this conversation around someone that's 16 months, it's, it seems so unnatural. It seems mm. so it seems so unfair, but it's the sort of little boy that I want to be able to raise because I want him to grow to be an adult that goes, I'm not great at everything and, and I have my flaws and my imperfections, but I'm okay with myself. And that's what I want for my son. I just want him to feel self-assured um, with his lot and be able to recognize and celebrate his strengths. But I want him to be able to acknowledge that there are things in life that he's not good at and that is absolutely okay. Yeah, I'm very slow to use the word perfect around him. I want him to have a really healthy relationship with that ideal. And I don't want it to take over his life. Yeah, I even try a lot of the time to not even use it when I am in a coaching context. I don't try, like if someone does a great set, I'll try not use the word, oh, wow, that was a perfect set because it can really set them up to be disappointed of a not perfect set which is truly I don't know if anyone is capable of or if they're capable of it repeating it exactly it just sets unhealthy benchmarks it's one of the problems with self-esteem is that we are aspiring to 
often unhealthy benchmarks that can't be achieved consistently. And that's the idea with perfectionism is that, that as we continue to grow and learn, this perfect, perfect ideal is always going to be stretched and stretched and stretched. So it'll never be a point where we can be at twice because we'll never be the same person. If we are on a journey of development, we will never be the same person. Um, so I think it's just, it's, it's language that I try to be really careful of around Billy because I want him to grow up and I don't see imperfections in Billy. I see someone who as, as a 16 month old, like in my eyes, he is perfect. He is the most incredible and beautiful little boy that exists. But I know that what I say to him now and how I am with him now will mold who he becomes mm. and I just want him to be able to embrace those flaws that I can't see just yet because <laughs> everything is just but I want him to be able to embrace those those flaws that will come up over time and not be afraid of them or think that he needs to hammer them out into something that looks looks more like what society says is perfect yeah I think it's an important part as well as like when you grow up and and having really valuable and honest and mm -hmm relationships yeah, yeah and 100% because you don't expect anyone to be perfect especially mm -hmm. if in a friendship context and so it is absolutely yeah. unreasonable to expect that of ourselves 100% I totally agree yeah thank you so much for joining me Sarah I really oh, enjoyed you. chatting with you thank you for having me it's been a really really nice conversation I really enjoyed talking with you as well Thank you so much. And just before you go, if you just want to give everyone a heads up on where they can find you and maybe any projects that you're working on at the moment. Sure. So you can find me at thebetterlifeproject.ie. My Instagram, which I'm pretty active on, is Sarah underscore the Better Life Project. And at this moment, I do all of my work online. So whether it's a workshop on discovering self-compassion or improving your confidence, you can find all of the information on my website and on my social media channels. And then I've also got a whole bunch of feel good products aimed at helping people feel good about themselves, affirmation cards, greeting cards, confidence cards, journals. Um, but yeah, confidence, self-esteem and self-compassion is my jam. So when you go onto my website, hopefully you'll see everything and anything that you need to start building your better life toolkit. Yeah, that's awesome. And also, yeah, your Instagram has been great through times of COVID. So it's been <laughs> great you. to be able to keep up to date with you on there. But yes, uh, you are very you. active. So I'd encourage everyone to head there. And as always, all this stuff is linked in the bio. And that wraps up today's episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Sarah Doyle. As I mentioned, her information is in the show notes. So if you want to find her on Instagram or find her website, head straight there. If you want to follow us, head to Women's Strength Collective 2020 on Instagram. And you can find me, your host, at Beyonce. I hope you guys loved it and I'll see you next time.